you know, dealing with the sadness that we felt when we lost a brother or brothers on the battlefield. Um, that was, Hey, we can be sad for a moment, but now we have to move on. Right. Mm. There's, there's a mission at hand. And I, I still understand that. I think it's still a, a, a good thing, but we're also human beings, right? We're, yes, we're men, but we're human beings first. This is a therapy for dads podcast. I am your host. My name is Travis. I'm a therapist, a dad, a husband. Here at Therapy for Dads, we provide content around the integration of holistic mental health, well-researched evidence-based education, and parenthood. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Therapy for Dads podcast. Um, I'm excited to have this guest on today. Um, very excited for our conversation today. And I think it's going to be very informative, insightful. It's going to be, I think, also very tangible and relatable and might be even challenging a bit, um, depending on where you fall um, and your thoughts on this particular subject or your experience with this particular subject. But before we go into the topic, I first want to introduce John and welcome John to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Travis. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so I mean, I'm so excited that you said yes. I wanted to be on the show and and share, um, you know, something that's very personal to you and something you're passionate about and something that you're doing. And I think it's going to be such a good, rich conversation today. So before we again we jump into that, can you tell us a bit about who who John is, just to give us uh-huh. kind of like a an idea of what we're getting into? Yeah, sure. I guess you and your audience need to know a little bit about me so that <laughs> they want to listen, right? Exactly. So yeah, John McCaskill, I am a 24-year Navy veteran. And of that 24 years, I spent 17 years in the SEAL teams or connected to special operations in some capacity. And uh, let's see, backing up even prior to that, grew up in a small town of Ruston, Louisiana, and part of a big family, five kids, born in South Africa, moved to the States when we were, or when I was seven years old back in 1984, so definitely dating myself here, and grew up in that that small town, Ruston, and then went from Ruston directly into the enlisted ranks of the Navy, from the enlisted ranks got picked up and went into the Naval Academy, and then from graduating from the Naval Academy, went into SEAL training and the Navy SEALs afterwards. But what I do now is completely different than hmm. most people would imagine as a retired Navy SEAL. I teach and coach mindfulness and leadership and how those two go together or mindfulness and leadership alone, either one alone. And that all started uh, with with some tragedy, actually. I was connected to an operation that went sideways overseas and lost a lot of friends. And that caused me a lot of survivor's guilt and anxiety and, and depression. And I initially self-medicated with alcohol and then went into abusing prescription medication. And that got me to a very dark spot in my life and finally sought some professional counseling. And the counselor recommended mindfulness and meditation to me. And I'll get a little bit more into that story here shortly. But that mindfulness and meditation changed my life for the better. And ultimately, I believe, saved my life. And that's why I I feel it's a duty and an obligation now to pay it forward and share these life-changing and life-saving practices with anyone and everyone who will listen. I mean, I'm captivated already by the story. And you've gone through a lot, it sounds like, in your story and narrative of who you were as a child and then coming to the States and getting going through your, your kind of journeying, so to speak, and then hitting tragedy and finding ways to cope. 
I think it's very common finding ways that sounds like numbing and not feel and just deal with the pain, not feel this pain anymore. And then finding mindfulness. Um, and I'm sure there's more nuance to this discovering and engaging in it. And at first maybe rejecting it, I'm sure, but can you, <laughs> yeah. can you speak a bit more about, you know, the journey of you had the significant loss and, and I'm wondering kind of growing up, maybe a little bit of a glimpse of, you know, John as a, you know, child, teen, you know, a young adult, you know, was there much conversation around mental health or conversation around like emotional intelligence or conversation around even my, this, this idea of mindfulness or was that something that wasn't even anywhere near your radar growing up? Yeah. If it was, if it was near my radar, you know what, now, now that you asked that question, I, that's the first time I've ever been asked that question in that way. It wasn't called mindfulness. I, I went, my mother was a yoga practitioner, not, not heavy, but uh, she did it a little bit as I was growing up. And I remember now, I mean, I hadn't even thought about it until you asked that question. I haven't mm. thought about it in years. I remember going to one of her yoga sessions and kind of sitting in the back and seeing these people, quote unquote, stretching and just kind of wondering what it was all about, not really hmm. having any clue. And at the very end, the the instructor invited me to join for a meditation. Now, this is, again, when I'm, I don't know, I must have been like 11 or 12 years old. And I sat there and went through what he guided. And, you know, as an 11 or 12 year old, my first introduction to meditation, I was like, okay, uh, my, my mind is on everything else. Didn't really, didn't really stick, didn't really resonate with me. So that was, that was there, but that was that one instance didn't really stick with me. So I didn't directly learn about mindfulness and meditation until years later, which I'll, I'll get into here in a second. But going back to my childhood, my, my parents taught some level of emotional intelligence, though it wasn't, I don't believe it was active. It was mm -hmm. more of a kind of by example, passive. They, they modeled it as much as they could. And they were amazing parents and they still are. My, my parents are still, still around and they're still amazing examples to me of, of strength and grit and resilience and, uh, and emotional intelligence for the most part. Um, so yeah, I, I learned it, but it was mostly passive, the, the emotional intelligence piece. The mindfulness mm -hmm. meditation, um, you know, my parents talked about, hey, try to pay, you know, you know, the proverbial stop and smell the flowers, right? They didn't say it in those terms, mm -hmm. but they're like, hey, let's let's focus on here and now. Let's mm -hmm. not, not think about X, Y, or Z in the future, X, Y, and Z in the past, but they didn't call it mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And that mindfulness and meditation didn't really come into play until many years later when I was when I was having those struggles. Mm. I did go to some health and wellness retreats, and I remember in one of them there was there was meditation taught, and uh, the the example was to just kind of picture a giant stop sign in this meditation, and that just didn't work for me. And at that point, I was convinced that meditation for, was for people of slower moving lives, slower paced lives, and not for people with, quote unquote, my life, my busy life, you know, my busy mind. And, and I convinced myself that I was not a person who could meditate. And then fast forward to this, this counselor who recommended mindfulness and meditation, because I'd had that experience before, I kind of laughed in his face. And mm. I was like, well, mindfulness and meditation is for hippies and monks and, and weirdos. It's not, it's not for me. Uh, not, for a, not for a Navy SEAL. Not for this Navy SEAL, right? And so he 
was like, well, what if I could give you a pill that would improve your performance personally and professionally, physically and mentally? And when he said it that way, I was like, yeah, doc, whatever pill that is, I'll take it. Because as a Navy SEAL or a type A personality, you're always looking for an edge you know, whether that's an edge over the enemy on the battlefield or your buddy right next to you, you're always looking for an edge. And he's like, well, it's not a pill. It's mindfulness and meditation. So he sold this thing, this mindfulness and meditation, these two practices or ways of living based on performance. And I started practicing. I, I, initial, I initially had challenges. I sat down for an hour long meditation on day one and it didn't go very well. But after some, after some guidance from that same counselor about how to start I got into much shorter meditations and then eventually worked my way into longer and more in-depth meditations. And the the performance side was initially, again, what sold me on it. And I did see the performance enhancement, but I also saw that I handled stress better, that I handled anxiety better, that I handled depression better. I say that very intentionally saying it that way, because a lot of people... I'm sure you've heard of mindfulness-based stress reduction, right? MBSR. And I, I fully believe that mindfulness-based stress reduction, but I, I don't believe it reduces stress. What I believe it does is it gives you tools to better handle stress. Hmm. So I wish it was called mindfulness-based stress handling or stress processing because I don't believe it reduces it. And that's a fallacy like Stress is going to be in our lives. That's part of the human situation that that we're in. Stress is there. But Mm. we handle it differently based on where we are in our lives, based on how much sleep we had, based on how much we're eating, based on how much coffee or caffeine we've had. And I think mindfulness helps to process it. Now, so coming back to my story, I I started it for the the performance-enhancing sides and the quote unquote side effects were that I was better able to handle all these other things. Now I am an avid practitioner and proponent of it. And that is because of the side effects. Those side effects have now become my primary reason to practice. And the now side effects are the performance that's, that's helped improve my performance. But my primary goal is so that I can better handle the stress, the anxiety, the sadness that comes into our lives inevitably. And so that I can feel like I'm more present in my own life with my family, with my colleagues, with personally and professionally, I feel happier, healthier, and more fulfilled. And then the the side effect is that I I feel that I perform better. Yeah. And I love how he pitched it and sold you on a, you know, would you take this pill if it gave you X, Y, and Z? And, and yeah. it was like the buy-in or the Trojan horse of, um, right. well, I want <laughs> That's I want a great that, way of putting you know? it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, like, you got me. You know, and, and, and he did. And you're like, oh, I want, yeah, I do want that because that's time I need to perform. I need to have an edge. I need to, you know, be more efficient and, and have these things. And, and what a way to sell. I mean, it's, it's you know, smart. So it wasn't a lie, but it was a way of getting yeah. you to, to, it was a way to make sense in your mind of what you needed to hear. And then here you go. And I want to speak, I definitely want to talk more about some of the benefits you're noticing and, and some of the things you're doing now. But back then when you had this big tragic incident, and I'm, and I'm wondering too, another piece I'm thinking about before the tragic incident of the, the loss, the, the, the horrible event that you experienced, going a little bit again about what you were modeled as a kid i'm wondering was there any frame or did the idea of like what it means to be a man being masculine like how did that also shape you when maybe this tragic incident occurred like what were you 
thinking in your head or to respond to this incident? Like, did that play a part at all? Yeah. So growing up, um, my father was an outstanding example to me of, of honesty, integrity, uh, being a man of your word. But he wasn't the typical stereotype of masculinity. He was and is still a cyclist who was very caring. Yes, he was the protector and provider for the family, but he wasn't like um, he wasn't harsh. He wasn't uh, stoic. He wasn't a conqueror that so many of mm. us imagine when we hear the term masculinity. But he cherished my mom, still does, was a gentleman. I, I believe that he, he modeled what uh, a gentleman, but not the, not the typical false bravado image that we get when we picture masculinity. Yeah. That image to me of, of what we all have in the past imagined as, as masculine, big, tough, you know, full of muscles, can conquer the world, provide and protect all simultaneously, I think came from, I, I had a track and cross country coach that was, was very tough, even, even though he was a track and cross country runner and, and you know, somewhat small physically in stature in my mind he was huge as far as the way that he carried himself and um our team our, our cross-country team this is back in you know the early and mid 90s it was a bunch of guys and we all promoted the typical masculine movies the typical masculine books you know like die hard rambo all those mm. all those kind of ultra violent movies that are, I mean, they're still fun to watch, but I think they're a little ridiculous and they, they promote an image of, of manhood that is not typical, mm. but we, we start to believe that that's what masculinity is. Mm. Fast forward that image that I had taken from the movies, from my coach, from the cross country team into the Navy and into the Naval Academy, that image is further kind of ingrained, right? You have to be tough, tough, tough to be uh, a military member. And then take that and further refine it even more in the SEAL teams. The SEAL teams are a hyper-masculine energy and they kind of have to be. Um, that we're, we're very competitive. We are the protectors and the conquerors in, the, in that field. And because of that, emotional intelligence is not something that, at least at the time, was at the forefront of our minds, you know, dealing with the sadness that we felt when we lost a brother or brothers on the battlefield. Um, that was, hey, we can be sad for a moment, but now we have to move on, right? Hmm. There's there's a mission at hand. And I, I still understand that. I think it's still a, a, a good thing. But we're also human beings, right? We're, hmm. yes, we're men, but we're human beings first. And with that, comes sadness from loss, comes times when you're going to feel inadequate and maybe you need to talk to somebody. And it's tough to do that in an uber masculine group, at least initially. It's, it's tough to be vulnerable. Vulnerability was not something that we celebrated. I mean, as as we've come to realize in the, in the past years, I mean, Brene Brown is out there laying the, the groundwork on how vulnerability is a strength. And I fully believe that. But, you know, in her uh, Netflix special that she has, she talks about 
she sits down next to a guy on the airplane and, and he says, well, what do you do? And he says, and she says, well, I speak about courage and vulnerability. And he says, oh, you're talking about two different sides of the spectrum. Well, no, that's not the case at all. Vulnerability and, and courage and strength are all on the same sides of the spectrum. And in my mind, back in the SEAL teams, and, and I'm sure in many other guys' minds back in the SEAL teams, and still today, vulnerability is, is kind of looked at as a weakness. It's looked at as a chink in your armor, right? That That is something we don't want anybody to know about, so we're going to hide it. And that that metaphor carries forward. That That armor is something that we put on every single day in the SEAL teams as men in, in society writ large. We, I think people writ large, we put on these masks and these armors that prevent us from showing who we truly are and having true connections mm. with people. Now, that all said, mindfulness and meditation, I believe, has really allowed me to do some deep introspective work and find mm. out who I am underneath that armor. Because there were times when that armor hid who I was from myself. Like, I didn't even know who I was, right? Yeah. And when I was able to do that, those med- some meditations, some things bubbled up to the surface of who I was, some things that had happened in my past that I didn't process properly that I'd kind of boxed up. I mean, that that one incident where we lost a lot of guys was one of them. Mm. I was like, you know what? I've got to focus on the next mission. And again, there's there's value in that. But at the same time, as the human being, that's tough. And yeah. you, eventually you have to process that stuff. As I'm sure you've read Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, uh-huh. it does. And it yeah. bubbles, bubbles to the surface. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it does, you've got to be ready to handle that. So these things bubble to the surface about who I truly was, who I truly am, mm. and things that had been trauma through childhood or through the military, those things bubble to the surface. And I was able to process that with a professional clinician. And uh, I think that's where the value of mindfulness and meditation and having some type of professional mental health support in place all simultaneously, those things go together and they can help to really address post-traumatic experiences and, yeah. and the stress uh, response that you have from those. I hate, to, I hate the term PTSD because I don't think, I don't think stress, traumatic stress and your natural human response to that traumatic stress is stress rather is a disorder. I think it is a natural human response. And I agree the, with the, you. really yes. the ones with <laughs> who are exposed to traumatic stress and are not changed by it, those are the people that I'm actually more concerned about. <laughs> and and I agree it's not a disorder. I think we need to I think language is, is powerful and it makes a difference. I think we do need to shift the language from disorder to something else, like more just a response, you know, just, you know, post-traumatic stress response, you know, or like an right. anxiety response or depressive response, something that's more, re, you know, that's a nervous system. But again, that was a quick thing. We could talk about that, you know, Stephen sure. Porter's like polyvagal theory, <laughs> Bessel van der Kork, like all that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah. it's all true. And now for a short break. 
So if you're looking for ways to support the show and my YouTube channel, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. There you can make a one-time donation or join the monthly subscription service to support all that I'm doing at the intersection of fatherhood and mental health. And all the proceeds go right back into all the work that I'm doing into production, into continue to grow the show to bring on new guests. So again, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. Uh, two things I want to look at real quick with the vulnerability piece. And I think it's so key because you kind of you hinted at, it, you kind of said it, but I want to kind of break down one, what are the what are the positives and pros of wearing a mask and moving on? Because there, because there's a, there's an adaptive response. And now you read all the stuff, obviously, so you know that there's an adaptive response to masking, to even numbing, to moving on. That's not all. It's not negative necessarily. It's not bad. So I wonder if we could speak to like what are the positives of masking and moving on to the next mission, as well as well, what are some of the maybe the detrimental effects? If we continue to mask and just continue to move on and continue to, you know, wear our armor, so to speak, because I think I think it's important that we look at both. Because sometimes, right. at least a lot doing my practice, often I'm validating why we do this. It's looking at this makes sense why you're doing this. It's there's a reason why it serves an adaptive, positive purpose, but often in the short term. So can we sure. can you speak maybe from your own personal experience of what you've seen on both of those, the positives yeah. and drawbacks? Yeah, no, a hundred percent, man. So this this particular event that I was involved with was in 2005. I, I escorted the bodies of two of my friends back to the States, flew them back mm -hmm. into Dover and, um, you know, turned them over to the, the people who processed them from there and then rented a car, drove from Dover down to Virginia Beach, prepared for their, their funerals and memorial services and everything else. And then after those, moved on to the next deployment training cycle and pressed on. So this was 2005. So there wasn't, again, a whole lot of focus on mental health, mental fitness, processing trauma, processing the death of, of your friends on the battlefield. Fast forward to 2013 was my last combat deployment. And I came back from that with the team. We all formally did what was at the time, I'm not sure what it's called anymore, but at the time it was called TLD for third location decompression, meaning first location is your home port, home port, second location is your deployment port, third location is some kind of neutral location between those two where you can come back and decompress. And that decompression looked like you would go into a hotel room, probably go and have a few drinks with your buddies, rehash the the deployment for a day or two, but you also had like formal things that you had to go to, like counseling, how to reintegrate into your family after being gone for six months. And then finally, the, the reason I'm telling this kind of long drawn out story will come into play here in a second. Finally, a, a piece of it that was supposed to be for mental health is called the checkup from the neck up. And you go in while you're there in the hotel and they have another hotel room specifically set where they have a clinician and you go in and this clinician asks you a set of questions and it's supposed to be, hey, how did you deal with the, the stress of the deployment? Did you see dead bodies? Did you lose any friends? Did you feel anxious or depressed? And I understand the intent behind it. But coming back to that, that armor that we were all wearing, like the last thing that we want to do when we get back from a deployment is 
sit in some third location away from our families, like we're ready to get back to our families, right? And the last thing that we want to do is tell a clinician, oh man, I'm really struggling with something and now be potentially delayed even more from going to see our family. So I understand the positive intent there and I appreciate the desire, but it was not fully thought through about who you're working with and their desire to get back to their families. So of course you're gonna be like, no man, I'm good. I'm good. Right. <laughs> so this, uh, this checkup from the neck up didn't really work out. So now I tell you all that to say in 2005, I boxed this stuff up from what I had seen, what I had done, what I had not done, because that can sometimes be just as detrimental to somebody's mental health as, mm -hmm. as what they have done. Box yeah. that stuff up, moved on to the next deployment training cycle. And then in 2013, came back, different way of going through it, but mentally still did the same thing. I'm like, oh man, I'm good, boxing it up, let's move on. There's value in that because we are the special operators in the, in the world, the military members in the world as a whole. We are an asset. We are an asset to the, the country and we are here to protect and defend downside to that is that as much as we are an asset, we're again, like I mentioned at the beginning, we are human beings. Mm. And yes, we need to be able to move on to the next target, the next mission at hand, the next ridge line that we call it in the military. Focus mm. on that next ridge line. Well, that's all well and good if you're a robot, <laughs> but we're not. And, mm. uh, you know, boxing it up, as we discussed before, the body knows it, it happened. And one of my buddies is like, hey, man, when you box that stuff up, and you take these boxes and you kind of put it in the basement, quote unquote, it, it goes down into the basement. And this is a hmm. great kind of image for it. It goes out down into the basement. It gets out of that box but it may, and it stays in that basement. But that basement is kind of like prison where there's a hmm. whole lot of weights around and these things kind of work out and get stronger. And then when you finally do open up that, that basement, all these things come out and they're that much stronger. Hmm. So... The only way to really get past these things is to process them. Now, do they have to be processed right away? No, but I do believe they need to be processed soon. So I think a way to do that is to do something similar to the neck up or sorry, the checkup from the neck up, but don't do it in between leaving the deployment location and being home with your family. Uh, at some point, you have to have some type of formal checkups. And I think they're doing that now. I think the, the mental health focus is is much better. And it's not just mental health, it's, it's mental fitness, like attaining and maintaining some level of mental fitness. And that mm. includes processing trauma. It includes improving your, your memory and your focus and your ability to process things on the battlefield. So we have these things called the, the mind gym, which mm. are, which are great for us, but, but it's also dealing with the, the trauma, the anxiety, the stress, the depression that we may face in and after the military. I think what I heard, and I think the theme that we keep coming back to in this episode is the, the, we are at the core of not that it's rocket science to figure this out, but I think you're repeating it for a reason because it's something that we can lose is that we're human, right. you know, that at the core, we're, we're not robots and we need to treat the human in front of us and do it in a humane way, in a way that uh, makes sense. And maybe the way in which we had it done and set up was well-intended and this kind of 
this TLD, this way of connecting. But in our minds, we we were done, ready to go home and didn't want to. Because I'm, I'm wondering, was there fear around if I did say something, would it, it would delay? Would Was there any fear of any reper- other repercussions too outside of oh, the yeah. delay of like, if I, gosh, I say something and sure, I can't see my family. And was there other possible things that was like? Yeah, there's there's a fear of losing your security clearance. All, all Navy SEALs have at least a secret clearance. Most of us have top secret or top secret SCI, which is secret compartmentalized information. And and those clearances take a lot of time to get. And if you lose it, it takes a lot of time to get back. And if you mm-hmm. lose it, you can potentially be taken out of the SEAL community as a whole at worst. Or, you know, at best, you can be potentially you know, delayed in, in your training or something. So there is definitely a, a reticence to, to admitting that you're struggling mentally or that you're at yeah. least have a challenge mentally. Now that perception is actually not true. I mean, there's, there's certain things mentally that if you, if you display, they're definitely going to take away your clearance. But if you say, Hey, look, I'm struggling with the loss of a friend on the battlefield, they're mm-hmm. not going to take away your clearance. If you, if you say I'm struggling with some anxiety because of hypervigilance, they're not going to take away your clearance. They're going to mm-hmm. process. They're going to help you to process that. They're going to get you to the counselors that, that you may need to, to see. So there's just a, there's definitely a misconception mm-hmm. in the military about, or at least there was. Now yeah. you got to understand I'm, I'm three years removed from the military. And, and even right. there, even prior to that, I was the last two years, I was somewhat on the exit ramp. And what I mean by that is I was, I was starting to get ready to get out. So my, my stuff is dated. My information is dated and they, Mm. I I believe they're doing much better at that. And I believe that they're also doing much better at kind of squashing those, those rumors or misperceptions. Yeah. Right. Cause maybe at one point in time it was true was my guess. Yeah. The rumors, some level of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or, or, you know, somebody, somebody may have said, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm considering, taking my life or somebody else's well at that point you may not want them around weapons or i don't i don't know again at what level these security clearances do go away but they they can they can be temporarily revoked and then uh, reinstated so um anyway and so, I mean, what I hear in that too is, you know, this whether it was perceived or real that the brain it was a threat to the nervous system, right? Yeah. That yep. well, gosh, if I say this, there's a threat that I, in a way, if you think of it like a safety and threat nervous system, and you you'll you'll track me with this because you've read these books, but you know, the nervous system is like, well, it's a threat that I have to be delayed from my family. I want to get home. It'd be a threat yep. that if I lost my security clearance to show what's really going on for me. It's a threat. Well, then what? Okay, then I'm not a SEAL anymore. I can't do my job. Then I can't. Yeah. That's a huge threat of your whole life, who you are, identity, yes. livelihood, what you do. Because uh, it is a threat to your identity. So many guys, because they put so much into becoming a SEAL and staying a SEAL, it becomes part of who they are. Hmm. Sometimes it becomes all of who they are. And when the threat is there of having that part of their identity or all of their identity taken away, there's a big question that hangs of who am I if I am not a SEAL? And a lot of the time people feel that if they're not a SEAL, they're nobody. Mm. Um, and yeah. and that can be very tough psychologically. Sure. Well, because so, who am I? I mean, that's like, that's yeah. like a soul yeah. 
like that's right. everything you know yeah. that's a that's like the it's biggest existential crisis yeah and so well, i'm not going to go anywhere near that so i gotta i gotta you know look to the next ridge i gotta keep moving and certain yeah. it's, so it's about survival that i gotta keep survival steep surviving and i in fact i did survive and i can't stop to really think and smell the flowers or really look at this because right. there's all these perceived and or real threats that if I do do something, it might change who I am. And especially if my whole identity is in this, it's like, I'm not going to go anywhere near that. And then maybe some of the culture too of hyper-masculinity, of no vulnerability, keep your armor on, which again, serves a purpose. I don't want to knock that. I think there's, in sure. some cases, in some things, you do need to have like compartmentalize and push on so you can do your job, especially right. as a first responder or, you know, you know, a SEAL, these kind of certain jobs that require some level of that for a time. And then, oh, so it's, yeah. it's adaptive, right? It's about survival. So I got to keep going. And, and, but eventually we got to like, I think the, the image you gave about the, the stuff getting stronger and working out in our downstairs basement is so true because you're right. That stuff just grows. And the negatives of that is we got to then become more creative on keeping that door shut. And maybe that's why <laughs> often men will turn to drinking, uh, or other things because it becomes harder to keep that door shut. It becomes more difficult because it starts to kind of ooze out. It's almost like I always give the image of like a boat that has holes. And if you have one hole, you know, I think of that cartoon, right? You could, you could plug it with a finger, <laughs> right? And then yeah, another hole, I'll plug that one. And then eventually, you know, you're plugging it, but eventually you just, you don't have enough fingers and toes. And then you're doing this game of trying to plug it, but it's, it's filling and you're desperately trying to keep that thing from, from sinking. Sure. But it's a losing battle. It's almost like the game two whack-a-mole. If you ever played that game, <laughs> you know. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, funny you should use that term. I was. We just interviewed Dr. Janelle McCauley, who's mm. a, a friend of mine, and she's also a, a combat veteran and PhD and big mindfulness practitioner. And she said that's kind of she used that exact same term. The whack-a-mole is that yeah. we are we're putting out these different fires, reacting to these different stressors throughout our day, throughout our lives. And, and eventually you're going to miss one of these things and it's, you know, it's going to get away and it's going to, it's going to cause some type of anxiety or some type mm -hmm. of stress response. And, and it's not, you don't get tickets at the end of this game, right? <laughs> no, you um, do not. You get, you know, other negative possible, possibly other significant negative detriments. So what are some other negative detriments that you either that you experienced or that you've seen happen to guys that, and that get stuck in um, that kind of survival response of just keeping the armor on, of just moving forward? What are some of the, the you know, top things that you've experienced or seen happen? For myself, it was difficulty to relate to others. I'm on my I'm on my second marriage, and um, you know I, I don't harbor any ill will towards my <clears throat> my ex wife, but I I struggle to um, relate to her and understand the challenges that she was having in her own life, and connecting with her on a on a personal level, on a on a romantic level it was next to impossible because all i kind of thought about was hey i've i've been exposed to trauma and mm. i i need to squash this trauma it took it took time and energy away from me to where i wasn't able to devote that time and energy to having any type of emotional intelligence at least not at home the professional side of me i still felt that i needed to be that professional and I devoted time and energy to being that good leader in in the workspace. But then when I went home and I was able to drop that armor, it was tough for me to to me to for me to be 
the the human being and the, the husband that I needed to be. Um, and I know as, as men, that's something we often do is we, we portray a different image professionally than we do personally. And even that personal image that we display to our, our family and our friends can be very different than the private image that we, that we truly are. So that's, that was one hypervigilance is is definitely one that I struggle with and many guys struggle with like you know not wanting to go to an area where there's a lot of people hmm. if you do go to an area of a lot of people constantly looking for the exits being aware of ways to get out potentially I mean carrying a weapon I have a knife on me right now like I carry a knife on me all the time hmm. um, and you know sitting down at a restaurant and having to face the door so that you can see who's coming in or have a, again, an eye on the exit being suspicious of new people coming into your life. Who, who are these people and what's their motivation? Why do they want to know me? There's yeah, the, the level of, of vigil, there's certainly a level of vigilance that I think we all need to have because there are times when there's, I mean, we, we know from watching the news, from being friends with people who've lost significant others, there, there are, there is evil out there, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to get into a or onto That's a big okay. soapbox about that. But there's a level of vigilance that we all have to have, right? The sure. the sympathetic nervous system serves a purpose, mm-hmm. uh, and it is there to keep us alive, right. and it is there to help to propagate the species. That said, when that nervous system, when we are living in the sympathetic state all mm-hmm. the time kind of living in the red as kind of a race car analogy. If, if, if a race car is constantly in the red, when it needs to accelerate, it's not able to because it's constantly mm-hmm. in the red. Yeah. And by living in the red all the time, that race car's engine is eventually going to burn out. Well, that's how we are. We're, because we're hypervigilant, we're living in that red, we're not able to ramp up if we need to. Mm. And over and above that, we burn out. And so that, that hypervigilance is definitely something that is not where we want to be. We want to be able to get down into that sympathetic state or sorry, the parasympathetic state and live in the kind of green or maybe the yellow. And then if we need to, we can ramp up and then mm. we don't burn out. I love that. That's a good image of the, of the car. You're right. Cause that hypervigilance is you're kind of stuck there and that yeah. leads to a bunch of things, you know, breakdown of your body, you know, fatigue, people have bowel issues, hair loss. I mean, a whole bunch yeah. of issues yeah. can come from living that way. And and it's kind of a, you're stuck in sympathetic and you're stuck in a fight flight state and you can't really relax. And you also can't really engage with people either, right? You can't, because that part of your brain is, it's like in a way kind of disconnected because sure, you're in your survival exactly. brain. So you're constantly on edge. So you can't really just engage you can, you can to some degree. It's not like you can't, but it's it's different than kind of that ventral parasympathetic. You know, I could relax and drop my shoulders, and I don't need to be on guard because there's because in a in a sympathetic state, there's there's it's more cues of threat than safety, so it's more threat, right. and so you have to kind of stay alert. And so, uh, or and I think a lot of guys too that I've seen that they're stuck in sympathetic that to get out of it, it, it won't be through mindfulness, which helps you get down to parasympathetic. They'll go drink which actually gets mm-hmm. into dorsal kind of shutdown numbing, which is a different right. way of, you know, you know, that's like the, it's a different way of the engine getting out of the red. It's like shutting it down completely, like, but right. not in a good way. It's like you hit red and the car just stopped. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you know, yeah. I ran out of fuel or something. So it works in the sense that it stops that sympathetic 
energy, but it, it not yeah. an effective way long term because it just kind of you just numb out and disconnect and disassociate, which is often from post traumatic stress response and some other things as we go to that numbing disconnected state as survival again trying to stop the body to forcing it to slow down right. but that could also too have some detrimental effects so i think it was a great example of being hyper vigilant because that's a, that's a very clinical term which you get because you've done it but i appreciate the the nuance and i think those listening kind of got a sense of oh yeah it could also i think i've seen it as constantly anxious just in general you know right. you may not know why you're anxious or overly worried about just things and um, yeah. things happening and your brain can't stop You're, you know, you just kind of have this, this energy that is just there. You might wake up on anxious or worried or go to bed and can't sleep. Your mind's racing. Things oh like yeah. That. Right. And you know, I mean, since this, this show is therapy for dads, I want to kind of bring in what that could look like as a father. Right? Yeah, please do. Now I, I do believe I'm, I, I'm starting to manage my hypervigilance, but I have three young children and you know, they're, the highness comes into play in trying to protect them from being hurt in any way. It comes into play in being very cautious of who they play with as as far as other children and what their you know what their parents have taught them as far as being mm-hmm. risk averse or not. And again, there's a there's a level of there's a level of vigilance that is healthy, awareness rather, maybe not vigilance, a level of awareness that is healthy. But when when my kids go to a playground and there's other adults around, I am very alert of who these adults are. Are they there with other kids or are they there by themselves as a, you know, as an adult walking around the playground? And again, I think there's a level of that that's that is healthy and, and important to have. But when it starts getting to the point where you're like, I don't want, I don't want my kids around any adults aside mm. from me and my, my wife, then maybe, it, then maybe there's uh, mm. a level of, of vigilance that has gotten from vigilance or awareness into hypervigilance. But yeah, like my, my kids, uh, you know, and again, this is being the protector, right? As the dad, as, as the masculine energy provider, protector, conqueror, if, if my kid is doing something that's going to get them hurt, um, there's a desire to keep them from being hurt. Hmm. But at the same time, kids have got to learn, right? We we all learned growing up. We got hurt and inevitably they're going to get hurt. There's no hmm. way that you can protect them from everything. And sometimes getting hurt or, and that's physically or emotionally, sometimes that's an important lesson for them. And you cannot wrap them up in, in, in bubble wrap and keep them from being hurt from everything. So that, that hypervigilance comes into play as a, as a father or as a parent yeah. as well. And sometimes that drives, <laughs> that drives my beautiful bride crazy. She's like, hey, look, they've got to, you know, they're going to ride their bike. You can't keep them from riding a bike. They're <laughs> right. <laughs> True. So, yeah. and, 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 and one more quick thing about being a dad. I'm wondering, since you brought it in, I'm so glad you did. I'm wondering how, you know, John pre-mindfulness, you know, versus John now having this practice, this routine, you know, when you think of even engaging your kids or parenting when kids are having a hard time emotionally, or, you know, if you're coming home, I'm, a, you know, is there a different version of you now, like of how oh, yeah. you are when you're with your kids and maybe they're having a hard time, you know, pre-mindfulness practice to now? Yeah. Yeah. I, I will preface this with saying I'm certainly not perfect in this and I don't think I'm not either is. by the way either. I say <laughs> yeah, it all the time think, on the show I'm a, yeah, I'm a trained clinician and I don't get it right all the time and I'm constantly yeah, having to think, like reassess <laughs> and that's why it's called a practice right it's a practice yes, right? it's, uh, it's we're, a practice. we're not experts but the one anecdote that always kind of pops into my mind when we talk about this is when my my oldest daughter now 
was like three weeks old or, you know, prior to that. As a brand new baby would do, she would cry in the middle of the night because she was hungry. And there were nights that it was my turn to go and feed her. And as embarrassing as this is to admit, this three-week-old crying because she was hungry would annoy me in the Mm. middle of the night. I'm like, oh my gosh, how dare this three-week-old annoy me and wake me up, right? So embarrassing to admit. So I would go, I would get this bottle, warm it up, take it back to her. I'm feeding this beautiful little miracle. I'm holding her in my arms. And what am I thinking about? Work. I'm thinking about work the next day. I'm thinking about what I screwed up the week before. My mind is on everything except this beautiful little baby girl that's in my arms. And now I've got my mind racing. I take her and I put her in her crib and I go back to bed. And because my mind is racing, I cannot fall asleep. Now, fast forward. This is around the time when I'm becoming an avid practitioner. Fast forward two, three months. Still, she's getting up in the middle of the night. I'm still having to feed her. But the way that I think about it is, oh, this is awesome. This is my time to spend alone with her, right? Go warm up the bottle, get her, have her in my arms. And what am I paying attention to? I'm paying attention to her Hmm. and the little coos and noises that this three-month-old is making. Hmm. And I'm paying attention to her reaching up and grabbing my fingers. And I'm I'm in the here and now, which that is in and of itself mindfulness. Hmm. And then when I'm done, I put her in her crib and I go back and I lay in my bed and I'm able to fall asleep because I haven't ramped my mind up. That's That to me, granted this is years ago now, that to me is an anecdote that's like the before and after John with kids. Now, the how this comes into play now is I come home from work and it's it's very easy to get wrapped up in this thing, my, my phone, and be like, I'm going to continue work even though I'm at home. But the mindful John will be like, hey, John, put your phone aside. You're at home. Let's enjoy this time of, again, being a human being hmm. instead of a human doing. The human yeah. being spending some time with my my beautiful bride and my beautiful children because that time is limited. We spend mm. we spend more waking hours at work than we do waking hours with our family, unfortunately. Yeah. And before we know it, those children who are still very young are going to be grown adults and they're going to be going out and doing their own thing and they're not going to need me. And at that point, then I'm going to be like, man, I had wish I had put the phone down. I wish mm. I had worked less and spent more time with my family. So the <clears throat> the mindful John again is still not perfect, but the the times that I am not being mindful are I'm more aware of them and mm. I can halt those faster than before I was mindful. Yeah. And again this human thing keeps coming up and human being versus human doing and I forgot who said that. But I, yeah, someone did John Cabot Zen or someone like that. But I remember like, oh yeah, that's that's a it's true because we're such a doing. We do 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 do. Right. And there's I think a time and place for doing. We need to be able to do. Just like you said, there's a time and place for the mask or the armor needed, or to be able to move on and compartmentalize and say, right now I need to focus on this. Right. When right now that's okay, temporary. But I need to go and kind of unpack that. What's this really about and process? You know, whatever I need to do. And even as a dad, you know, going from this place of you, you know, being stuck in a sympathetic, activated mobilization state of anxiety, you know, she woke me up with the heck. So you're already kind of actually activated, which is your nervous right. system. It's yep. kind of a threat, right? She's it's threatening your nervous system of sleep. I'm up right. and now my mind's racing. And so versus now the mindful John of practice. And I know no one's, I'm not perfect. And we always say that. I'm glad that you do too, because the, the reality is 
you're, it's, it's a constant practice, no matter till the day I think we leave this earth, whenever that might be, right. is that it's a constant daily awareness of where am I? <laughs> am I stuck in doing? Am I stuck, stuck in sympathetic or hypervigilance? Where, am I present? And then now this John of practice could connect with your daughter and actually be an eventual parasympathetic state, a calm, connected state. So you're able to engage at back then her coups and, you know, be just slow down and then fall asleep. And even now, you know, as you could come home and put the phone down and I can be present. I'm not, my mind isn't, my mind isn't stuck on work and that's not, that's not ruling my life. Right. Now a thought might come in, right. Or a feeling, but part of the mindfulness practice is okay. just a thought I, I could give attention to it or I could just let it, let it, you know, acknowledge it. Um, not suppress it, not stop it. Cause you can't do that. It's like trying to stop waves coming in the ocean. Right. No matter how hard you try that waves coming, but it's more about redirecting the energy and saying, Oh, I see you here it is. And let me move on. And now you can be more present, John, and, you know, and, and aware of, like you said, aware, awake, being, and knowing when you need to be in that doing mode, knowing when you need to be kind of have that vigilant awareness. Like, like you said, there's a degree to which we do need to have awareness and not have blinders on. Sure. And it's this kind of space, right? It's this spectrum of not being totally stuck in hypervigilance and not totally like checking out like, well, you know, living especially from someone who also was a SEAL, because to some degree, you need to be vigilant. Like, you have to be vigilant, right? Sure. Going out in the battlefield, you can't just be, you know, I'm just going to walk around and, <laughs> you know, just just kind of lollygag. You can't, yeah, you can't do that. Like, you have to be vigilant and aware and tuned and in sympathetic. Sympathetic enables you to survive. So these aren't bad states, but we need to know when we're in these states and the purpose they serve. And do we need to be in that state right now? Is this state actually effective for me in this context when I'm with my kids or my wife or my friends? Do I need to be activated or do I need to, oh, I need to like check in and slow down. And so as we start to come up to a close, I want to ask this question. And I'm curious if you could talk to John now back then, you know, when John was coming, you know, he just had this experience. What is something you could say or be with him now that might help along his journey, something he might needed to know or have an experience with that just might have spoken to him more specifically or might have many be penetrated, so to speak, in an effective way that maybe taken a piece of the armor off and delivered something to him that he can maybe receive. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I was able to go back and, and talk to, you know, the John of of twenty years ago or ten years ago or even, I don't know, six years ago, um, I think I would tell him that you you are enough. Mm. And that the real you is enough, not the not the you that you portray yourself to be, not the you that is seen by everybody else underneath the mask or underneath the armor, but you without the mask and without the armor are enough. Hmm. Sure, you're. It's still like you, like we've covered already on the, in the conversation, there's times when the, the mask and the armor are appropriate, but I think there's, there's a misconception that you are not enough unless you're wearing that armor. Hmm. And, and that's not true. So hmm. I think that's what I would tell him. Yeah. Well, I thank you and for talking, John, and I keep talking, but you know, got to close up here, but I would love right. to, I could probably talk for another hour about this stuff with you. And I'm, where can we find you? Like if people want to connect with what you're doing and see the work that you're doing and kind of teaching. And by the way, you have your own podcast called Men Talking yeah. Mindfulness, by the way, that's, I want to make sure we pitch that because this is all about right. mindfulness and, and right. teaching it and talking about it and having conversation and education and giving it away. But where can we find you? Where's all that stuff located? 
Yeah, thanks for thanks for that opportunity, Travis. Well, first off, the the podcast is called Men Talking Mindfulness. And for your listeners, we're actually having you on our show next <laughs> week. And that's going to be live on Wednesday. What is that? 23rd or something? Uh, so. Wednesday, August 23rd. So I think people will actually hear that before they hear this. <laughs> they so, will anyhow, actually. So yeah, back in time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you'll uh, yeah go back in time. But uh, yeah, if you have a chance, check that out. We have that on video and in podcast. We're on YouTube, different social medias, men talking mindfulness. And I host that show with a good friend of mine who was a yoga instructor in New York City and kind of the, the plug or the the tagline of the show is what happens when a Navy SEAL and a yoga instructor get together to talk about mindfulness. And we just don't know. We never know. And that's that's the fun that we have on the show. So there's that episode, or sorry, there's the podcast. And then I'm, I'm fairly prolific on social media, specifically LinkedIn. That's actually how Travis and I met was on LinkedIn. So if you just look me up on there, John, J-O-N, McCaskill, M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L, or you can go to johnmccaskill.com forward slash links, and that will take you to all my different social media, the different podcasts that I'm involved with, the different business ventures that I'm involved with, and my email and everything else. So that's probably the easiest one, johnmccaskill.com forward slash links. Okay, right. and, and that's all I mean in the show, guys. All the links for John, hyperlinks, click on them. They'll be clickable. It just make it easier, but you could definitely type those in or click on description. They're right there to click on to make it even easier for you. If I can make it easier, I will. You could also type it manually. And John, thank you so much. I definitely have to have you on again because there's tons of other questions I want to ask about what would John do? Like one question came to mind that we don't have time to answer is like, what would John do now if he could help the military better teach mental fitness? What would he do differently versus this kind of meeting in the hotel room? Um, I'm sure you have a whole <laughs> right. thing on that, but you know, I think maybe they're doing it now, like you said, but there's so many other questions I want to ask, but it's been so honored to talk to you and thank you for sharing personal stuff and, 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 and about who you are and blessings to you and your family today. And I can't wait to be on your show next week. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me and thanks for what you're doing. It's, uh, it's much needed, so I appreciate it. Thanks for joining and listening today. Please leave a comment and review the show. Dads are tough, but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone.